If you have your Bible, please open with me to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one underneath one of the seats there. If you're using that one, I believe you're going to be on page 5. That'll be pretty easy to find. Short turn towards the beginning, and you'll, you'll get there. <clears throat> so we started a series last week looking at the family of God throughout Scripture. And in order to do that rightly, we saw that we have to look at the covenants that God makes with humanity. So we began in the garden, looking at God's covenant with Adam. And there we saw that uh, there were really two. One gave way to the other. Um, if you remember how I began last week, and I'll kind of start the same way today, it is, uh, it's very popular to hear today that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And there are truths to that, but the problem with that is scripture also says that Christianity is in fact a religion. That we want a good and undefiled religion before God, which is what Christianity ought to be. But it is in fact a relationship, but it's a specific kind of relationship. It is a covenantal relationship. Uh, a covenant is a legal bond between two or more parties with specific terms and consequences. You have covenant curses, you have covenant blessings. We saw last week that Adam, if he was to obey God, uh, he would have blessings of entering into greater life and glory. And that life and glory and joy would spread to the ends of the earth and be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth and subdue it, fill the earth with the blessings that God had given him. God blessed him and then commanded him to do these things. And he was to take those blessings to the world. But if he failed, if he disobeyed, there were covenant curses. The day that you eat of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat, you will surely die. And indeed, by that, he meant death, spiritual death, depravity, corruption, condemnation. All these things would come into being along with physical death. And indeed, they did. And remarkably, God, instead of simply taking Adam and Eve out, Instead of simply putting them to death, he gives them a promise. He tells them in Genesis 3.15 that he's, he's going through and he's addressing the serpent that leads Eve astray. Then he addresses Adam, or he addresses uh, Eve and then he addresses Adam. But as he's laying out these consequences for their sin against him, he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is remarkable because this means one, that Adam and Eve are going to be alive to have offspring. Right. So automatically they're hearing good news that they're not going to die that day, even though. There has, in fact, entered in a spiritual death. And even though they are, in fact, dying physically at that point, there's hope in the midst of curse. There's hope in the midst of consequence. There's grace in the midst of consequence. And this is what theologians have pointed back to as the first gospel, that right here in the midst of the consequence, you see good news, that God responds in a loving and a gracious and a merciful way, showing himself, showing himself to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, instead of just simply swallowing, swallowing them up as they deserve and unleashing his wrath and fury upon them. 
He had every right to take out humanity at that point, but he did not. He instead has grace and promises them future grace that through their offspring, someone will come to crush the head of the serpent. As we saw last week in Revelation and elsewhere, uh, God's word identifies that serpent as Satan himself, the great evil one who seeks to steal and to kill and destroy and to lead us astray. And of course, we know that the, the ultimate answer to that promise is Jesus himself. He is the great skull crusher. He is the one who comes to crush the head of the enemy and to prevail over sin, Satan, death, and even satisfy the wrath of God for all who turn from their sins and trust in him. And so we see a gospel promise right in the midst of these lists of curses showing us that there is, in fact, blessing here as well, which is why theologians have said not only was there already a covenant with Adam that he failed to keep, often identified as a covenant of works or a covenant of law or a covenant of creation. Not only was there that covenant, but that covenant immediately gives way to a new covenant, a covenant of grace where God promises Blessing, And now some say, I don't know if I see that there, but we know there's some sort of grace promise and some sort of gospel here, because instead of everyone immediately being cursed, we know that Abel is then saved because he's listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Even Adam, I think, professes faith in this 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 early uh, promise of grace in Genesis 3 because after God gives his promise in Genesis 3.20 he says the man called his wife Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and what you see there is that Adam believes what God is promising that through Eve a savior will come who will bring life to the dead who will bring salvation to sinners and this is why I think the very next verse says, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In other words, God sacrificed animals pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and clothed Adam and Eve because they seemed to be responding to his promises by faith. They failed to keep the first covenant by faith. But now in the covenant of grace, they seem to be responding by faith. They see the errors of their way and they trust in Christ. Well, as we'll see, I'll give you the context here in a minute. A lot of things go astray in between Adam and Eve and Noah. But today we're going to focus on Noah and God's covenant with him and see how this promise of redemption and this promise of grace carries forward and unfolds greater this idea of the family of God and covenant theology. So I'm going to go over Genesis 6 through 9 today. I am not going to preach all three chapters, right? I, I, don't, I don't want to keep you here through whatever snowmageddon we got coming, but, but I'm going to kind of do an overview of it. You have certain verses in your bulletin there that I'm going to attempt to cover. And so I'll skip around a little bit, but let me open by reading just the first part of chapter nine, chapter nine, verse one, a few verses in. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. 
and to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, life-giving word of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, would you open our eyes now to the beauty of your word? Help us to see this story of redemption as it unfolds, to see your grace through covenant as you adopt a family for yourself through sinners like us. God, help us to see the beauty of Christ and his gospel. Even in this Old Testament text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So to give you a little bit more of the context building up to this, after Adam and Eve, after Genesis 3, we see the promise of death in response to their disobedience come into play. Right? Cain and Abel come on the scene. And Cain and Abel offer sacrifices or offer offerings of worship to God. And Cain's is rejected. Abel's is accepted. What's interesting is there is that Abel offers a, a an animal sacrifice to God and Cain offers something else. But the the ceremonial law as it's laid out in the Mosaic Covenant is yet to be given, at least not on paper or tablets of stone or anything like that. But somehow or another, they seem to understand some sort of sacrificial system. I think this is tied to what God does in response to Adam and Eve's sin that he sacrifices for them. And so Cain and Abel do this. Cain does not sacrifice rightly. Abel does. But the bigger issue is not so much the sacrifice as much as faith. Abel seems to be coming with a heart of faith and Cain does not. But God graciously warns Cain and tells him, he says, look, if you do what Abel does, if you do well, will you not be accepted as well? If you approach me with faith, if you approach me with obedient faith and do what I call you to do, will you not be accepted as well? And then he tells them, but beware sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, to devour you. And so he's calling him to resist it, to fight sin, to pursue holiness, to have dominion over sin instead of letting sin have dominion over him. And of course, even though he paints this image of sin being like a like a criminal hiding behind a corner, ready to pounce on him. It's not sin that's outside of him. It's him. He's the issue, the sin within. And he's saying, look, the desires of your flesh, your sinful passions are going to lead you towards murder. You need to have dominion over yourself and have self-control, fight sin, pursue holiness and do the next right thing. Do not fall into this trap. But he does. He sins and he murders his brother. 
And God calls him to account for it. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are. You're created in the image of God. He's created in the image of God. And as we saw last week, part of being created in the image of God means you have God's stamp of morality on your heart. That you know the commandments. You know what is right. You know what is wrong. You have God's moral law written on your heart to some degree. And you know that you are created to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And for Cain, his neighbor is his brother Abel. And instead of loving his neighbor as himself, he puts him to death. He snuffs out the image of God. A man who was created to worship God, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And so an attack on his fellow man is an attack on God himself. And it's a failure to keep both tablets of the law. He did not love God and he did not love his neighbor. So when he asks God, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. You are called to uphold God's law. God's standard of morality is the same throughout all of eternity. Right is right all the time. You are called to love God. You are called to love man, especially those closest to you. And murder is in direct opposition to that. Right? One of the commandments. To not murder. You cannot love your neighbor if you murdered him. You cannot love your brother if you murder him. So God calls him to account because he was indeed his brother's keeper, but he failed to be. And so what you see happening is you had Abel, who was this godly offspring of Eve, a man of faith. It's not that he was righteous in and of himself, not that he was godly in and of himself, but that he looked to the promises of God and he believed them. He trusted in them. But then Cain kills him. And so what you see is that from Eve herself seemed to be the offspring of the evil one and the offspring of faith. Both are there. So back in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Right? He's talking about mankind, but you have mankind who rebel against God and do not believe God, do not take him on his promises. And Ephesians 2 is going to tell us that that's where all of mankind is outside of grace. Everybody is dead in their trespasses and sins. Children of wrath like the whole of mankind. Under the prince of the power of the air. That's the serpent. That's Satan. They are under the evil one by their sinful nature in Adam. That's where we all are outside of God's grace in Christ. That's total depravity. It's not that everybody is as wicked as they, they could be. But that everybody is wicked in one way or another. And even our best deeds are as filthy rags. Because even the best things we do outside of God's grace in Christ are for our glory instead of God's glory. And that's at the heart of sin. Right? Falling short of the glory of God is what sin is. Because that's what breaking God's law is. That's what being disobedient to him is. And so you see... This promise being threatened by what Cain does. There's a promise, Eve, that's going to come through your offspring. And one of them is going to be the full and final one 
who is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. But then the one who seemed like he might, if he's not the one, be the one that that line's going to come through, Abel, is murdered. Will God's promises come true? Is the gospel being threatened? Well, then you get down to Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26, and we see a new child born. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So a new son is born to Adam and Eve, Seth. And she said, the reason she named him Seth is because God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what you have is two opposing bloodlines. You have Cain, who is all about wickedness and unrighteousness and evil. And then you have Seth, following after his brother Abel, following after the promises of God in Genesis 3.15, following after Adam's faith in Genesis 3.20, that Eve will be the mother of all living. Abel and then now Seth seem to be those who have eternal life. Because they actually take God at his word. As it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Beloved, Old Testament saints are saved just like us. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They call upon the name of the Lord for mercy and grace. The same thing we do to be saved. Or the same thing you ought to do if you hope to be saved. If you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ... Beloved, I call you right now. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. He's abounding in steadfast grace and mercy. And this is what they were doing at that time. And so now you have this godly, righteous line established in Seth that seems to be the line that will eventually deliver the Savior. And that's what happens, actually. In Luke chapter 3, verse 38... It tells us that directly tied to the genealogy of Christ is Seth. Seth, Adam, these were sons of God because they looked to God by faith. But they were not the ultimate son of God who was to come and to live for us and to die for us, to rise again from the grave so that all who turn from their sin and trust in him would be saved. That was Christ. But Christ comes through their line. But something happens as you continue to push on. When you get to Genesis 5, verses 28 through 29, it says, One of the descendants of Seth, Lamech, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work from the painful toil of our hands. Okay? Noah's born, tied to the line of Seth. Then you get to our passage in Genesis 6. So all that was context. I haven't even begun to preach yet. <laughs> Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. All right. Few things are happening. Man is multiplying, which means not only the line of Seth, but also the line of Cain. They're multiplying on the face of the land, and daughters are born to them. And then there's this contrast. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, there are different arguments about who the sons of God are. Uh, if you're looking at your bulletin, you'll notice I left out the verses that talk about the Nephilim. Uh, I did that on purpose because I don't know. Uh, <laughs> what are they? Uh, yes, see, uh, see Eli, he'll give you all the answers. Uh, <laughs> but not important for what we're walking through here. But even the sons of God, there's debate about who these people are or are they people? Uh, some say this could be angels because angels are referred to as sons of God. Uh, some say it could be fallen angels, demons, because sometimes they're referred to as sons of God that fell or uh, evil, wicked gods that are false gods. Sometimes uh, tyrants and kings are referred to as sons of God. So it could be talking about that. But I think the most natural reading is that this is talking about the sons of Seth, the line of Seth. Now, you can disagree with me. It doesn't affect the gospel in any way. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. But a simple reading seems to give you a contrast between the line of Cain, which is man, flesh in and of itself, fallen in nature, and then the line of Seth, which is godly and righteous, gracious in nature, seems to be, uh, you essentially have one offspring in Adam and the evil one, and one offspring in Christ, which is tied to Abel and then Seth and on down the line. And so when I see sons of God in verse two, in chapter six, I think in the same way we are, that we are the children of God. We are sons of God and have sons and heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, right? This is how God talks about his people all the time. Why? Because you're special? No, because you're united to the son of God, capital S, capital G. You're united to Jesus by faith, making you a child of God bringing you into his family through that adoption that happens by that justification that comes through faith. So when I'm looking at this, I'm just seeing this as the Christians of the day, those who have faith in God and his promises. Could it be something more crazy? Not doubting that. But I just think a simple reading of the text is the best way to go. So if I'm offending your crazy, awesome version of the text, please forgive me. Uh, <laughs> But I think the gospel remains the same, so it's okay. So what you seem to be happening here, though, is you have the line of Seth now intermarrying with the line of Cain. You've got an ungodly line and a godly line coming together. And it's bad enough that the ungodly line is doing all they're doing, but now corruption is coming into the godly line. So for Seth, as for him and his household, they were serving the Lord. The kids were being raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They were being taught to trust in God's promises and to obey God's law and to live for God's glory. But then something comes in and corrupts all of this. And God responds in verse three, saying, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Now, that 120 years does not mean 
from now on, man will live max 120 years. No, it means in 120 years, a flood is coming. Judgment is coming. So starting in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, this seems harsh. One, it seems harsh because none of us want to die and he's about to wipe out all of humanity. But this is not harsh. They are offending the God of the universe. They are exercising only wickedness all the time. That's the thoughts of their heart. The heart is the core of your being. So who they are at the very core of who they are is nothing but wicked all the time. Totally depraved. And that, that's in all of us to some degree, right? Which is why we, we preach the anti-Disney gospel here. Do not follow your heart. Follow Jesus, right? Okay. So... If you follow your heart, it leads to very bad things. If you don't believe me, just ask the people of Noah's day. You can't because they've been wiped out. So, this, so there you go. It's bad. But even now, right, we, we have that temptation in our flesh to go awry, to go the wrong way. But we should not, we should not find ourselves looking at God and saying, was it right for you to do that? Yes, it was. What we should be questioning is, God, why do you save anyone? We're so wicked. We're so wretched. Right? I, I can't help but think, I mean, some of you probably like me, you have R.C. Sproul and you're echoing in your head sometimes where he's looking around and saying, what's wrong with you people? But the, uh, he said once, um, bad things don't typically happen to good people. That only happened once. And he volunteered, right? Because the only good person truly is Christ. All of us have sinned against the infinitely glorious and good and holy God of the universe. Therefore, every single one of us deserve infinite wrath. Just for one sin. One of your sins is that bad. But look at what God's saying about these people. All of the time. He saw that wickedness, wickedness was... And man was so great that every intention, all of them, all the time, every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Everything was rebellion against God. Their thoughts, their actions, their words, from the very core of their being, they were rebels. They despised God. They sinned against Him in everything. They were violently raging against God and against one another. So the Lord said, I will blot man out. I will wipe them off the face of the earth. And he's just to do so. Because every single one of us, no matter how good we think we are, every single one of us, the only thing we deserve is death and hell. And anything beyond that is pure grace. In so many ways, we are no better than the people of Noah's day. Unless we find ourselves like Noah. Look at what it says about Noah starting in verse 8. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, Noah was not actually blameless the way we think about it, as if he had never sinned. He was indeed a sinner. But like his forefather, Seth, he called upon the name of the Lord and was counted righteous by faith. How do we know that? Well, we read, or I read earlier from Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 6 and 7. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The very next verse, by faith, Noah. Noah did what he did by faith. He's righteous by faith. Now, this is ultimately because God decided to pour out his mercy and grace upon him. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, not because of Noah, but because of the Lord. God's love and, and grace towards us is rooted in him, not in us. As Martin Luther once said, the love of God does not find what is pleasing to it, but creates it. God doesn't love you because you're awesome. God doesn't love you and save you because you deserve it. He loves you. He saves you because you're a sinner who deserves wrath. But because he's so gracious and so good, it flows out of his goodness and gracious. And in his kindness, he chooses to have mercy and grace upon some. And so God decides he's going to choose Noah. And he's going to continue to make good on his promise through Noah and his family. That, that promise rooted in Genesis 3.15, that covenant of grace, that the serpent will be destroyed by <laughs> someone from the line of Eve, that's going to come through Noah and his family. But everybody else is going to be blotted out. So Noah is blameless. Noah is righteous because of his faith in God's promises and ultimately his faith in Christ through God's promise. Then it says... Verse 10, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Then he goes on in verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. Verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So Noah's righteous because he's walking by faith. He's walking with God. He's in communion with God. And then God comes to him, chooses him, tells him what's going to happen. And Noah continues to respond by faith. He does all that God commands him. He trusts and he obeys. He has obedient faith. So faith without works is dead, we're told. Faith without obedience is not true faith. Just like obedience without faith is not true faith. Neither one are salvific. But Noah has both. He trusts 
and he obeys. And then God gives him this promise through the form of covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. Now, you can't see this in the English, but some of you are learning Hebrew right now. And so you can check my work. But when he says, I will establish my covenant in verse 18, the word is actually, I will confirm my covenant with you. That is, I will confirm my covenant that already exists with Adam with you. This happens later with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham, but then he confirms it with Jacob, Isaac, all of the descendants of Abraham as it goes down. It's the same covenant, but being reaffirmed, being confirmed. It's a covenant already established. And so likewise here, this covenant has already been established back in Genesis 3. God responds to the sins of man by establishing a covenant of grace and he's confirming it here in Noah. So we think about the flood as this great story of judgment and so we should. But even in this story, we are seeing remarkable grace because nobody deserves anything but wrath and judgment. But yet God confirms and reestablishes this same covenant that he has promised to Adam and to Eve and to Abel and to Seth and on down the line until you get to Noah. And he's going, yes, he's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring wrath, but he's going to provide a way of escape, an ark. The ark is often referred to as many other things in scripture, such as the world is sometimes referred to as, a, as the ark and the tabernacle and then the temple and then ultimately Christ and the new Jerusalem and the church. But the idea is the only way to be saved is by looking to God's promises ultimately in Christ. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This ark is meant to point us to Christ. This promise, this covenant given to Noah is to, to point us to the promise and the covenant that we get ultimately in Christ. It's all pointing us to Jesus. A new covenant would be fine, but instead he confirms that this is, this is tied to the existing covenant that I've already given to Adam and Eve. That for those who look to my promises, those who look to me by faith, life will come. Salvation will come. Trust and obey and you will be saved. And what's remarkable is it says that Noah is the only one who's righteous in that day. He's the one who's blameless in his generation. He's the one walking with God. Yet God in his grace calls Noah and his household to join him on the ark. And not only his household, but as we'll see, some of all of creation. So chapter seven, verse one. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Then he says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, 
the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not queen, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now, did you notice anything there? There's more clean animals than unclean. I can't help but think of the animals put that together. Why is there so many of us and so few of them? Well, then when you get to the end of the story and they get to dry land, the first thing uh, Noah does is he slays some animals and offers a sacrifice to God. So it's like they made it the whole time. And then, sorry, guys. <laughs> you did so well. You were actually dinner. Uh, <laughs> no, which I point that out merely to show that even the ceremonial law and the sacrifices that are going to come later in the Mosaic are again appearing here before the law is given. And so this law seems to have been given in some way. And so the whole law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the, the ceremonial law, and, uh, and as we'll see, the judicial law appear through this covenant with Noah. So God in his grace preserves not only Noah, but his whole household through this because of Noah's righteousness, because of his faith. And we're going to see that throughout all the covenants. That when Abraham is counted righteous by his faith, God gives him the sign of circumcision and says, this, this is tied to your righteousness by faith. And then he tells, it to, tells him to apply it to all the males of his household. So, well, what do they have to do with this? Well, it's because it's a sign of the covenant. We think about baptism, we think about circumcision, we think about all these different signs as something we're saying. But God is saying, no, I'm declaring something to you through these signs. I'm declaring to you my promises. They are a sign of my covenant promises, as we'll see when we get to the rainbow. But likewise here, because of the righteousness of Noah, his whole family is brought into the ark, whether they're righteous or not. And as we'll see, one of them is certainly not righteous. One of them goes astray and continues that same line, that same pattern of Cain, even though he's tied to Seth. You always seem to have the offspring of the evil one, the offspring of righteousness and grace in Christ. And so until the final day when Jesus fixes all that, I suppose. But let's continue on. So he gives these promises to Noah and to his household, but not only his household, but the whole of creation. The earth essentially is being judged and wiped out, but it's actually being restored. It's having the wickedness wiped off of it. We're not given a new planet, but we are given one that's been cleansed by water, as we'll see. But God preserves even all these animals, clean, unclean, birds of the air. And so you have the promises given to the children of God by faith, directly affecting the whole of creation. What's good, what, what God promises, the good that pro God promises to his children, to his people, to his church, directly affects the world. Like, have you ever noticed that the majority of hospitals have something like Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist in their name? I mean, I know they're trying to fix that now and trying to hide their roots, but it was Christians who started those things, right? Because the, the righteousness and the faith and the grace that are in Christians directly affects the world around it for the better. 
I heard uh, Paul Washer say the other day, before Christianity, our ancestors were painting themselves blue and stabbing each other with spears, right? And then Christianity comes in and you get things like Bach. Like what happened? Christ comes in and suppresses the wickedness and causes the righteousness to flourish. And it's good for all of humanity. And it's even good for the creation. And that's what we see happening here as well. God's covenant with Noah is a covenant that is good for the whole world. It's good for all of creation. But it's right and good for God to judge the rest of creation with man because Adam was meant to rule and reign over it, to have dominion over it. He was a king under God's lordship over all the earth. He was the covenant and federal head of all of humanity and the one who was the steward over all of creation. And when he fell, all of creation fell. That's why there's a curse over all the earth. That's why it's all broken. When our federal representative enters into sin, it leads us into sin, which is why we're all born sinners now, because we're born in Adam. And as much as we don't like that, we love the fact that this is how it works in Christ. Because our federal representative in this new covenant of grace, Jesus, because he's righteous, when we look to him by faith, we're counted righteous. But the same way in, in many other institutions, the righteousness of the head of the household directly affects the household, which is what we see happening with Noah. It brings his household in with him, but also all of creation, at least in representative form. Now, let's continue on. Verse 6. Of chapter 7. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his son, or wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So this is similar to what we see in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 14 that the household of a believer is made holy because of the grace of God on the believer. Not meaning that they're saved but that they're brought into this graciousness and they're called to live up to God's claim on their life, to repent, to believe, to trust in him, and to realize that they are not their own. They've been bought with a price. They belong to God. They are to glorify God with their body. Okay, skip to verse or chapter eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. So I skipped over all the, the talk of the water. But the water comes in, floods the earth, comes from below, comes from above. And the earth is covered with water, except for Noah and the ark and the animals with him and his family with him. But notice this language in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. God remembered the covenant that he reaffirmed and confirmed with Noah. And so in this sense, God is remembering what he's promised to Adam, to Eve, and to, to Abel, and to Seth, and to their line, and to Noah now. He's remembered this promise of this gospel, this covenant, this grace. And so all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark are going to take partake in this promise. But notice it says, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The word for wind much like in Greek, but in Hebrew, is the same word for spirit. This is the same image we see in Genesis 1 when God is creating. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the, of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Or the wind of God was blowing over the face of the waters. It's the same idea. Of course, Jesus says the same thing, right? The Spirit of God blows where it will. Right? This is the idea. What we're seeing here is an image of creation, really a recreation, a new creation. God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. In the beginning, water is directly tied to God's creation. God creates out of water. And now in this new creation, God is recreating through the waters and he's blowing the breath of life on the earth and the waters are subsiding. So creation and new creation are directly tied to water, which we see that in baptism, right? Dead to sin, raised to newness of life in Christ. It's tied directly to, to new creation. Water works that way again and again in the Bible. And as we read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3, this is an image of baptism, right? God brings down the waters upon Noah and his family and upon the whole world. For those who look to God by faith, through the waters comes newness of life, comes recreation, comes mercy and grace. For those who reject God and his promises, for those who rebel against him and choose the flesh and choose sin and choose wickedness, the waters bring judgment, right? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If you do, bless it. If you don't, curse us. That's what the baptismal waters remind us of. And that's what the waters of the flood tell us. You look to God by faith, you will come through this water with salvation, with mercy and grace. If you look to God in rebellion, you will be judged. You will be punished. You will be condemned. But God remembers his covenant with Noah. And so for him, these waters mean a new creation, a new start, a new beginning, righteousness, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Jump down to verse 13 of chapter 8. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So they are already being promised something, but now they're moving into greater grace. They're removing the cover of the ark. It's a lot like removing the cover of the old covenant and entering into the new. And what was mysterious and uh, concealed to a degree is now revealed and made open and plain to us through the gospel of Christ. There's so much imagery in all of this. Verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you all, with, with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons, and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, 
I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So, notice what's going on there. God is lavishing Noah and his family with grace. And he's reestablishing this dominion mandate, this cultural mandate that he made with Adam. To have dominion over the world, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue it, to fill the earth. And again, you see what happened in creation is happening again through Noah and his family in a new creation, in a restart, as it were. And this is to directly affect not only Noah, but all of these creatures with him and the earth they shall tread on. And he takes clean and unclean, but then he sacrifices from the queen, worshiping God. The first thing he does when his feet touch dry land is worship the Lord. And the Lord smells the pleasing aroma. What's interesting about that word pleasing is it's the same word as restful, a restful aroma. And if you remember back in Genesis 5, when Noah's father, when they had Noah, when him and his wife had Noah, he says, out of the ground, the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work. He shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. God smells the pleasing aroma of Noah and his faith, the restful aroma of Noah and his faith as he worships him. And Noah is showing himself to be a type of Christ here. When Christ gives himself as the ultimate sacrifice for us, and it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and it brings in true rest from all of our toil, from all of our pain, from all of our sin, from all of the judgment, from all of the condemnation. This is all pointing us forward to the gospel ultimately that comes in Jesus where true rest is found. Jesus is our rest. But here Noah's living up to his name and bringing in rest for the people of God, bringing in mercy, bringing in grace, even for the whole of God's creation, because it is the father's work. It is not this evil, wicked humanity's world to take over and run as they will. What's interesting is the violence of man is what leads God to unleash the violence of the floodwaters upon them. He essentially says, you want it, you got it. You want violence all the time, I'll give you violence all the time. Your judgment is to partake in what you're dishing out. And he unleashes that fury upon them that they are already unleashing upon themselves. But with Noah, with Noah comes a new start, comes mercy and grace where he and his household and creation with him can flourish. And so God establishes this covenant. He responds, he says, I will never again curse the ground. I will not do this. Even though, even though man's heart is evil from his youth, even though men are sinful, I'm not going to strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. It will stand as my world. In chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, same pattern 
as with Adam. First comes the blessing, then comes the command. First comes the mercy and grace, then comes the obedience, right? God blessed Noah and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So here again, we see this dominion aspect, this kingly aspect of what Noah is called to do. He is a prophet. He is a priest. He is a king. He is worshiping rightly, offering sacrifices to God. He's bringing his family into the ark, delivering the word of God to them, saying, God has said this will happen. And I believe him Come into this ark with me. Surely they helped him build it. And then not only that, he's ruling and reigning over this new creation that God has established as his under shepherd, as his under king. He is the prophet and priest and king that Adam failed to be. Of course, we'll see Noah's not perfect either. We need a perfect prophet, priest and king. And that's what we're given in Christ. So again, this is what all of this is pointing forward to. But even here, mercy and grace is abounding as Noah is called to step up and do what Adam failed to do. And he will have dominion. The fear of humanity will thrive over all the earth, meaning they rule and reign even over the animals. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So now they were on a strictly vegetarian diet and now they're allowed to eat meat. Something has changed. Well, this is tied to the same imagery we see with Christ telling Peter or with the image that Peter sees where God makes all things clean. So God enters in a, a, a new gracious era, a new creation he makes changes that display what he's ultimately going to do in saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and generation, Jews and Gentiles, making all things clean, seeing that essentially the earth will one day be covered in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right. God is taking over and it's all spreading out. And, and that's the point here that what what was once limited is breaking out into an unlimited manner. You were strictly on a plant-based diet, but now you can enjoy meat and all of these good things. And then there's gonna be greater restrictions later through the Mosaic Covenant that are then released through the New Covenant, showing again that, that clean, unclean Jew-Gentile reality being torn down and God taking over the world as it were. And praise God for that because we like bacon. We had a shrimp bowl at my house last night. Right? Things that would not be possible if Christ had not made all things clean. So I'm very thankful for that. So he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Verse four, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood, right? Because that's pointing to gospel realities as well. And sacrifices that are meant for God and, and blood as the life blood, he says in verse five, and for your life blood, the, the life being tied there to the blood. Uh, and now he's going into the worth of man. He says, verse five, and for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. 
From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. What does he mean by that? Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see that? He's establishing essentially the death penalty. He's establishing justice to a greater degree. He's bringing out what was implicit and making it explicit. And saying, hey, don't do what Cain did. That's not okay. And if you do, I'm not going to be lenient the way I was with Cain. Because now, if you shed another man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Justice must happen. What we see happening here is we've already seen the moral law is here. And we've seen the ceremonial law happening through the sacrifices. Now we're seeing the judicial law even present as God is establishing justice in a world gone mad and reordering the chaos that it unleashed upon the world and why he had to wipe it clean through the flood. So he's establishing justice for all and it's rooted in who God is, right? Don't kill man because man images me, right? You need to obey the second tablet of the law because your neighbor is made in my image. You obey the second because of the first. And you obey the first and the second, hopefully because of the gospel. But whether you believe in Christ or not, this, this stipulation, this establishment of judgment applies to all. This covenant is tied to all of creation. Nobody gets out of this. I remember there was a time where I thought it was wrong to ever mention the law to anybody who was not a Christian. And I thought, why, why would courthouses have the Ten Commandments posted? Why do schoolhouses need the Ten Commandments posted? Or why are they not posted anymore? And people are upset about it. Because they're a general rule for all of humanity, for justice and righteousness to be there, and for humanity to flourish, for the creation to function. Both the first and the second tablet of the law. These are important. For all of mankind to live rightly. We, we see this right here in the text. That the, the very righteousness of not murdering and all these things. This standard of morality is rooted in who God is. You don't murder man because man is created in the image of God. Then he says verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him. Behold. I establish my covenant with you. I with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I, 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 sovereign grace, God, 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 he's doing it. 
even the bow, the rainbow that we see in the sky, which way is the bow pointing? Towards him. Right? He's saying, if this covenant be broken, let the curse of it fall upon me. He's not going to break his promises. And even, even his promises tie back to Adam and Eve. He's not going to break those. And even the curses that deserve to fall upon us for our breaking of it fall upon Jesus. So just as God sees the rainbow and remembers he's not going to destroy the earth the way he did in this day. So God looks at his son and he remembers he's not going to destroy his people who look to him by faith, sinners though they may be. The curse falls upon himself. Jesus goes to the cross, lives after living the perfect life for us, goes to the cross and takes the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself. The bows pointed at him. He takes the fury, he takes the judgment upon himself so that grace and mercy can abound to sinners like us who look to him by faith. And here in this preservation covenant that's happening, God says every time he looks at the bow, He'll remember he's not going to bring his wrath and fury upon the world the way he once did. Sinful though it may be. And if he breaks his word, let the curse fall upon him. But may it never be. Let God be true, though every man a liar. God is always faithful to keep his promises. And that's ultimately what all of this points us to. A promise given to Adam and Eve seems to be shaken and as though it won't be kept when Cain murders Abel. But then God appoints a son, Seth. And through that line comes Noah. And Noah brings in a new state of righteousness, a new state of flourishing, a new state of grace. He progresses the covenant of grace a little further down the road until he gets to the point to where ragtag people like us Come into the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and gather together in Terrell, Texas in the year of our Lord, 2024. This is what God does. He's faithful to keep his promises. And he looks at his covenant signs and he remembers what his sign means. And he remembers, these are my people. I am their God. I will bless them and I will keep them. And he remembers that this is his world. He's not going to destroy it. But he's going to cause it to be taken over with righteousness. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen. This is our father's world. Satan does not get to claim it. Wickedness, wretchedness and evil do not get to take it. It belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that reality will grow and be seen more and more until the day he comes in his fullness and his kingdom will come and his will will be done fully and finally and all things will be made new. That's what this image is pointing us to. A new creation that's coming, a new heavens, a new earth where there's no death, there's no sin, but only perfect joy and glory in Christ. This covenant of grace cannot be broken. God has established Signs and seals that point to that reality that he keeps his word and he keeps his people. We're about to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. And when we do, we're told to remember, to look at it and remember Christ. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. 
He doesn't say do this in remembrance of you and your faithfulness and how awesome you are. No, do it in remembrance of me and how I lived for you and how I died for you and how I rose again for you. You are my covenant people who I lavish my grace upon. And this is my world that I created for my glory and I have laid claim to it and no one will take it from me. That's what we see in these covenants. That's what we see in this grace. God is good. God is sovereign. God is just. And God is merciful and gracious. May we look to him by faith and remember that this is his world and we are his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to glorify you in all things? And now, as we respond to your word and singing your praises, help us to remember that this is your world. That though, though the wrong seems often strong, you are the ruler yet. You rule and reign, you are sovereign, you are good. And no one can take anything from your hands, including us, us who look to you by faith. No one can snatch us out of your hands. So God, help us to do that, to look to you by faith and to live for your glory, to establish justice and righteousness, to advance your law, to advance your gospel for the glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.